Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. I've got a treat for everyone today. We've got Dr. Danielle Serrano back on the podcast. I really love having her on as a guest because she always manages to make the kidneys actually make sense. But more importantly, she told me that today's topic is her favorite diagnosis to make, and I think that enthusiasm really shines through. We're going to give an overview of nephritis, what it is, how to diagnose it, when to bring the nephrologist on board. Some of this is immediately usable knowledge. Some of it pertains a little bit more to our board questions, but all of it is important. So let's move on to the interview. My name is Danielle Serrano. I'm a pediatric nephrologist at Children's Hospital of Colorado. We have Danielle today to talk about nephritis because she told me in excited terms that this is her favorite topic within all of her all of entire medicine. practice, all, all of, of medicine. medicine, because we are, number one, we already know that the kidneys are the most important organ in the body. Obviously. We're aware. Yep. Uh, and then two, this is the most important disease. So we had to talk about it. So, uh, which is the most satisfying disease to satisfying. diagnose. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. W- what, what is nephritis? Well, I like to say it's when you're, the gloms of your nephs are itis <laughs> So it really just, it is like the term. First of all, nephritis, acute GN, glomerular nephritis, they are all interchangeable. Does nephritic syndrome fit in there yep, as well? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. We just love it so much. We have all these synonyms. Um, and it literally means that your glomeruli are inflamed. It's usually immune mediated, but it's not particularly clear like why some people get it, some people don't. I'm sure that and when we get smarter, we're going to learn a lot more about epigenetic causes, but most of it's immune mediated, some of it's antibody mediated, some of it isn't, and they're all different. Yeah, so how do we think about this? Do you have a good way to break it down? Yeah, so I love this diagnosis because once you diagnose nephritis and we'll go through what you need in order to diagnose it, you're either hypocomplementemic or normal complementemic glomerular nephritis, so low C3 or normal C3. And from there, it's kind of easy to figure it out. Well, not always easy, but it's very satisfying. So I like to remember, well, first maybe we should talk about when you even think about nephritis. Yeah. And I don't know, do you want to review quickly about nephrotic syndrome? Yeah, I actually, I would love to, um, because I always have to stop and think about what the difference is. Right. And this is one of those things that I think I also enjoy because, you know, when I remember being a medical student and reading about nephrotic syndrome and like, oh, yep, that makes sense. And then I'd read about nephritis. Yeah, that makes sense. And they seemed very distinct and two different things. And then you actually take care of patients and some nephrologist walks up and says, oh yeah, they're nephritic nephrotic or they're nephrotic nephritic. And everyone's minds or heads just kind of explode. Be be honest. Do you do that to the rest of the the intentionally? I do, but then I explain myself (laughs) because it's just so fun to say nephrotic nephritic. So first of all, it does not matter if someone's nephrotic nephritic or nephritic nephrotic. Like the order in which you say those two words means nothing. It's just the preference of the sayer. It's like the door is blue or the blue door. It's the same. But all it means is that you have nephritis with nephrotic range proteinuria. Now that takes maybe two seconds longer to say, and yet it's so much more like it's such a better explanation. And I don't think people's heads would explode, but I think it's just part of our culture that we say nephrotic nephrotic or nephrotic nephrotic. But when you have a combination or features of both, it, it fits generally under the nephritis with it is a nephritis. nephritis. Okay, it is great. a nephritis with nephrotic range proteinuria. It is not a nephrotic, just to clarify. It's a nephritis first with nephrotic range proteinuria. We've said both of those words a lot and not defined either one of them. People so could have a drinking game it. at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so first let's do nephrotic syndrome. Well, actually, first let's remind ourselves about total body water. So remember about 60% of our body weight is just water. Two-thirds of it is intracellular, one-third of it's extracellular. The effect of osmol, it regulates intracellular versus extracellular is sodium. 
when we then talk about the extracellular fluid compartment, a quarter of it is vascular and three quarters of it is interstitial, thereabouts. The effect of osmol that regulates vascular versus interstitial is albumin. And then this is where we can think about Starling's law. Do you remember like our hydrostatic pressure minus our oncotic pressure? Hydrostatic pressure is pushing. So our vascular hydrostatic pressure, capillary pressure is pushing, trying to push fluid out of the vasculature and into the interstitium, whereas albumin is the oncotic pressure kind of keeping and maintaining some of that fluid in the intravascular space. And this comes up, it's important because the edema that you can see in either nephritic or nephrotic syndrome is often from very different. Um, in nephritis, it's usually from high hydrostatic pressure and hypertension, whereas in nephrotic syndrome, it's usually low oncotic pressure. I appreciated the way you broke down sodium and, and albumin. I'm oh, yeah, furiously thanks. And, sketching that down. Well, and the only difference, and this is where some of the terminology, I think, loses people, which is a shame. The difference between osmotic pressure and oncotic pressure is just the size of the molecules. So that's why when we talk about albumin, we're talking about oncotic pressure. So I think some those, kind of, those are the things that I, I know because it used to confuse me that we, sometimes we lose people, and, and I, I hope that we can clarify that While here. we're at it, can you explain to me the difference between osmolarity and osmolality and why I would oh, care yeah. one versus the other? Yeah. Well, you're talking to maybe one of the only people who cares. So um, osmolarity versus osmolality. So osmolarity is per liter. Osmolality is per kilo. And this is important because as temperature changes, volume changes but weight doesn't, right? And so in biological systems, we should use the term that is not temperature dependent so that whether it's happening at room temperature versus body temperature, the number shouldn't, the unit, like the actual level shouldn't change, right? So for that reason, we use osmolality in biology. That's the only time in my entire life I've understood one versus the other. Good. Good. Happy to be of service. Hopefully I got it right and not reversed, in which case I'll be really embarrassed. I'll, I'll re-listen to this and just make sure. <laughs> Sorry, just real quick. What we need, we have three features of nephrotic syndrome. The first you have to have in order to have nephrotic syndrome, and that's nephrotic range proteinuria. So in children, we do a spot urine protein to creatinine ratio. And if the ratio is greater than two, that's nephrotic range. If it's less than 0.2, that's normal. Anything in between is just proteinuria. And because of that, then you have a low serum albumin. That's the second criteria you have to have. And then the third thing is edema. And you have that edema, again, because of the low oncotic pressure here. Usually these kids are normotensive, sometimes a little hypotensive, if anything, and tachycardic because they're intravascular volume deplete, even though they are volume overloaded, but they're not intravascularly volume overloaded. And then the fourth thing I always check, they should also have a high cholesterol. Not everyone does. If they have a normal cholesterol with their nephrotic syndrome, I'm more worried about a perineoplastic syndrome or a lupus, which can present in nephrotic or nephritis. <laughs> lupus Super is like, helpful. lupus is, it, it's all one big Venn diagram. And most of your nephritic syndromes can present as a nephrosis. They should always be on the differential as well. Is there a similar diagnostic paradigm for nephritic syndrome? There is, yes. So in nephritis, in this case, the sine qua non you have to have to make this diagnosis is a cellular cast. And this, this is, I just love, I love, love, love looking for casts under the microscope. Some of my favorite memories from fellowship where, you know, we, we had, I think, 12 attendings and six fellows. And of course, we should have had a multi-headed scope, but we didn't. We just had one, like, eyepiece, and we would all line up, and people would argue whether something was a cellular cast or not. And then if one person saw it and the next person didn't, they'd accuse the other person of moving the slide or that the urine had kind of, like, floated. The cast had floated off, and that's the only reason they didn't see it. But we would have, like, major arguments about this. And it just, I think my GFR picks up every time I, I think about it. But it's 
a lot of fun. And this is one of the few times that I will give the bedside nurse my cell phone because I want a fresh, warm urine sample to spin and look for casts. And it's not because I'm weird. I might be weird, but I, I, the reason I want a warm sample is because if you leave the urine sitting there, the cellular cast could just break apart. And that's like the Kaiser Soze of glomerulonephritis. nephritis. Like he's gone. And then you miss the diagnosis. So you want it fresh. We spin the sample. We get rid of the supernatant and just look at the sediment where all the cool stuff is. And then I actually wrote a haiku for the resonance. Let me see if I can recite it. Oh, red blood cell cast. Search around the cover slip. GN is the best. And this reminds you that when you look under the microscope, <laughs> you're laughing, but it, it's, it's a key I'm point. I love it because it's incredibly creative and, uh, and I'm, I will never forget it. I don't know if, if I'm the one looking, <laughs> the only one left in or looking for casts, something has gone horribly something wrong. Something has gone wrong but, or but you finally maybe, decided to do a renal fellowship. Uh, that's, that's possible. <laughs> but yeah, so the, it just reminds you that, so it, you don't have to sit there and like search for hours under the microscope to look for casts because of surface tension, the cast will go to the edge of the cover slip. So you just do a quick lap around the cover slip. And if they're cast, then you have nephritis. And if there aren't casts, then it's not nephritis. Dumb this down for me a little bit. What are casts? Like, oh, where no, do they yeah. come from? How are they formed? So first of all, there are lots of casts. We actually have like, you can order them online. They're like posters. <laughs> In nephrology that like, like like show you pictures of casts. In nephritis, we're actually specifically talking about cellular casts. And this is important because anyone can have hyaline casts, right? I mean, or granular casts. In ATN, you can have like muddy brown casts. In nephritis, though, you want to see actual cells. So if you actually see a cellular cast, you should be able to focus in and out of it and see cells throughout. And what it is is that cells have snuck through the glom because it's inflamed. And then they kind of get stuck and actually take the shape of the tubule. So it's an actual cast of the tubule, and it just shows you the shape. Now, they don't have to be red blood cell. They can be white blood cell casts. And if you have a white blood cell cast, like kind of nephritis, that's more of an exudative nephritis. Those kids tend to do worse clinically. Like it's a, it's a more difficult case usually. But usually they're red blood cell casts. So that's that's point number one. Yes, <laughs> I do get do get sidetracked about casts, but <laughs> yes, you have to have a cat a cellular cast to make the diagnosis of nephritis, and then everything's kind of a bell curve. You don't have to have any other things, but typically you'll have hypertension, you'll have edema, and you'll have acute kidney injury. In this case, this is really where we want to think about that pathophysiology. So the edema here isn't from low oncotic pressure. I mean, it might be if they have nephrotic rage proteinuria. The edema here is usually high hydrostatic pressure, so they're hypertensive. And in this case, their intravascular volume overloaded. And so if their kidney function is still, if they haven't gone completely aneuric into fulminant renal failure, this is where a nice slug of a diuretic can really help. Because Wait, do I get to use Lasix here? You, you, you do. Although I thought we were supposed to use generic <laughs> terms, but well, yes. I, I, I'm sorry, f no, furosemide. Furosemide, but it's good. This is the one medication is great to know why they called it Lasix because it lasts six hours. So give them their dose and then monitor for response. If they don't have a response, there's no evidence that giving them more doses or giving it differently isn't, is going to help. Are so. you, you telling me that what I was taught about it having some sort of like minimum effective dose is, is potentially not true? That, I that, would, that people needed to reach some sort of threshold of Lasix? Well, so it's now been pretty well described that you give a furosemide stress test, which is one mg per kilo per dose IV in a furosemide naive patient. If they are not furosemide naive, then you can give them 1.5 mgs per kilo on that initial dose. And then you monitor for response. And if they respond, great. But if they don't, don't keep more, more eating the dead gonna... horse. Yeah. Um, especially if you have any renal failure because the, the any diuretic has to get into the tubule to work. And so if your tubules aren't getting perfused or if they're not filtering, you know, it's just 
they're just not going to work. So is the lack of respond to it typically that it's just not making it to the tubules or, or yeah. there people that are like genetically Yeah, and I have to always have to, to look it. this up. No, it's usually that your renal failure is. And I think that most, I believe, furosemide uses those organic cation. It doesn't like actually get filtered into the tubule. It actually gets um, secreted into it. Okay. But, I mean, that's helpful, though, because you can help the hypertension and the edema in one shot if they will respond and if they really are nephritic. Now, things get incredibly more complex when we talk about those nephritic nephrotics. So you have a nephritis, but now you also have nephrotic range proteinuria. So if we think about that physiology, you have hypertension, you're probably volume, intravascular volume overloaded, but then you also have low oncotic pressure. These kids are really, patients in general are just really difficult to manage. They're usually managed as an inpatient. It gets really tricky. You really have to think about the physiology and their blood pressure and what's going on in the vascular space. Remember that your kidneys only sense and respond to the fluid in the vasculature. They don't know how edematous you are in the interstitium. So that's really what they're responding to. That's what diuretics affect. And so it's important to keep that in mind. But then once you know you have a nephritis, this is when, back to your question, you check the C3. And depending on the age of the child and, like, if it's a 16-year-old female, I'm probably going to check a C3 and a C4. If it's a 4-year-old who had a strep infection a couple weeks ago, I'm probably just going to check the C3. But it's, it's okay. Check the C3 and the C4 if you want. In things like lupus, the C3 and the C4 will be both low. In things like post-infectious GN, just the C3 will be low. But that kind of gets us into the way that I think about nephritis. So first of all, the three major – so there are a couple more that are very rare, but the three things that most people should remember as far as hypocomplementemic GN, I just alluded to two of them. The most common is post-infectious GN. Notice that I said post-infectious, not post-strep. It can be any infection. And it can really be the day of infection up to a couple months. And so usually if we have a hypocomplementemic GN in a kid who clearly doesn't have lupus, we make the assumption that this is probably post-infectious GN – this will self-resolve. We just have to manage the nephritis. And sometimes it's very severe. Sometimes usually it's subclinical. Most post-infectious GNs come to no one's attention. Maybe the kid got a little puffy one day. Maybe they had some tea-colored urine, but no one noticed. And then we, on the other hand, can see kids with rapidly progressive post-infectious GN who need dialysis. So again, it's that bell curve. But if it is post-infectious, what we'll see to confirm the diagnosis, we always just have to say it's an assumed diagnosis until about four to six weeks later when we repeat the C3. If it was post-infectious GN, that C3 should now be normal. If it's not normal right away, but it's kind of heading up, we'll usually give them another month or so. But if it stays low, then we have to think, oh, this probably isn't post-infectious GN. And so then we would do a kidney biopsy. And that leads us to another cause of hypocomplementemic GN. This is the rarest cause, and that's membrane proliferative glomerulonephritis. I think it used to be called hypocomplementemic GN. The C3 is low. The C4 can be kind of anything, but that C3 basically just doesn't normalize. We diagnose that on biopsy. There are a few different types. And we want to make the diagnosis first because the type matters and how we would treat it matters. But usually these kids will be on a prolonged dose of steroids. So that's two causes. And, you know, I went to the most common and the least common, so post-infectious GN and membrane proliferative GN, but then the other one is lupus. Now, you should have hopefully some spidey sense going off if the patient could have lupus, rash, joint issues, 
some like thrombocytopenia or anemia or something, if you're at all worried that it's lupus, definitely make sure that you get the C4 and also send it a screening ANA. And then the rest are all normal complementemic. The most common normal complementemic GN worldwide is IgA nephropathy. IgA nephropathy is a nephrocentric HSP and Lakshanline purpura. That's how I think of it. Uh, whereas HSP is more systemic, but that's on the differential. Uh, I always ask about deafness because alports and the other hereditary nephridities. That's another thing about nephritis and why I love it. It's fun to say the plural form, nephridides. I mean, that's just that's just a fact. And then also all the, like the ANCAs, the artists formerly known as Wegner's, which is now granulomatosis with polyangitis or microscopic polyangiitis. By the time we're getting on this differential, we have our rheumatology colleagues weigh in because I'm not a rheumatologist. And so we usually measure, we we handle all the, the renal issues and the sequelae, and then they help with the diagnosis and also help guide with the immunosuppression. Once we have a definitive diagnosis of some sort of nephritis, I don't know about most other people, but at least our ER doesn't do emergent renal biopsies. No, um, yeah. <laughs> and so so where do we go from from there? Is this, yeah. is this and I guess I'm at, coming at it from a, how time sensitive is starting treatment and do they need to start it from the ER? Do we wait and refer them to you in clinic? And I'm assuming that the majority of these are treated with steroids. Well, yeah. So, and actually some of, a lot of, like if you think about post-infectious GN, that's a self-resolving illness that often we don't treat. Now we'll manage the hypertension and the edema and the acute kidney injury. So really the acuity of what does the kidney even need to be admitted or not depends on, okay, well, how hypertensive are they? How edematous are they? You know, if they're stable and walking on room air and normotensive, they probably don't need to be admitted at all. But if we need to manage them with some furosemide, some of these kids have to go to the ICU because they're in hypertensive emergency and they need an icardipine drip and they, or they need urgent dialysis. Typically, it's very rare. Now, I will say that as a fellow, I did do many, <laughs> at least several bedside ICU percutaneous renal biopsies. Really? I was I was making that joke uh, tongue-in-cheek because I just assumed that oh, that no, wasn't yeah. something that could no, be No, especially done, a but... rapidly progressive GN, you, you, those kids often need like aggressive treatment. I would say the most common thing is that it's a post-infectious GN. We assume it's post-infectious. We treat them as such, and then we confirm or... We dissuade ourselves of that diagnosis well after the admission is over okay. in four to six weeks when we repeat that C3. Are there any other rules of thumb for treatment or diagnosis or things that you think the general population should know? Again, I, I think that the main thing is that if, if a caregiver is complaining that their kid looks puffy, start with the urine and go from there. I'm really not even sure how to go about summarizing all of that. Briefly, glomerulonephritis has many synonyms. It requires the presence of inflammation within the glomeruli, which you can find or confirm by the presence of cellular casts in the urine. If you happen to be operating the microscope, Danielle's suggestion is to look around the edges of the cover slip. We will also typically have hypertension and edema, and this edema is caused by different pathophysiology than nephrotic syndrome. Now I'm going to drop a little bit more detailed summary into the show notes, as well as some links to the other discussions that Danielle and I have had both here and elsewhere. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd, via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com. You can find the rest of my podcasts at www.littlebigmed.com or through just about any major podcast player. And if you have some time, I'd really appreciate you heading over to wherever you're listening to this and leaving a review. It really does help other people find the show. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 